Welcome to this episode of A Good Service on All Other Lines, a story and song podcast written by David Head and Matt Glover. This is a narrative show told in five parts, so if you're joining us partway through, we'd recommend going back and listening from the beginning. They don't work as standalone stories. Enjoying his one line of dialogue, that's Matt Glover. I'm David Head. Please enjoy the show. Story of Nick Pettigrew. Tickets, please. Ticket, please, said Nick Pettigrew, without any real expectation of anything happening. Nick's dismally low expectations were, as always, spot on. If there was anything working on the railways had taught him, it was that the light at the end of the tunnel is indeed always an oncoming train. The young woman he was speaking to stared not at him, but through him, as if he wasn't there at all. His heart sank. Having women act like he wasn't there wasn't a new sensation to him, apart from his Christine, of course, but she'd been different. Yet this particular form of invisibility felt unsettling somehow, just deeply wrong. Excuse me, miss, I need to see your ticket, he tried again valiantly. A look of puzzlement came across the woman's face, her eyes narrowed in concentration. Sat with two phones out, she looked for all the world like she was trying very hard to hear a distant noise or remember a song she'd loved once. After a moment, she gave a gentle shake of her head, as if awakening from a daydream. Nick Pettigrew sighed, returning to his endless nightmare. Ticket inspection wasn't a career he would have chosen for himself. In fact, it wasn't the career he'd chosen. In life, Nick had been a moderately successful IT consultant, Not a glamorous way to spend your brief time on earth, and certainly it didn't make for great dinner party conversation. Though this hadn't specifically been a big problem for him, as he didn't go to many dinner parties. Christine had always been the one that people wanted to catch up with, not him. You don't have to worry about being boring if you're too dull to be invited in the first place. His grandmother had told him that. For all it lacked excitement, IT was a safe choice. Steady. Solid. Actually, Nick thought sadly as his incorporeal form drifted through the carriage doors, it was solid in a way that he no longer was. So Nick was used to a certain amount of monotony. He wasn't given to lofty or even romantic ambitions, and yet still he could not find a way to tolerate ticket inspection. There was a sort of nobility to it, he supposed. When you really stopped to think about it, he was a gatekeeper. For was it not his whole punch and biro that allowed people to move on with their journey, to reach whatever destination their fate had in store? A lot of responsibility for a whole punch, that. But why him? Why had he, Nick Pettigrew, one-time IT manager, frequent pessimist and noted dullard, become a ticket inspector after he'd died? He'd had some initial theories. At first, he wondered if he had been murdered without realising and, in haunting the train, was in fact haunting his murderer. There were several flaws with this line of thinking, though. Apart from anything else, he couldn't think of anyone he knew who would want to kill him, or indeed anyone who worked for a rail company. To demonstrate this, he'd drawn himself a Venn diagram of people who want me dead and people who work in rail-related jobs, with the overlapping section marking out potential suspects. But had left it completely empty. The pessimist in him did point out that maybe Nick was just a shit detective. 
Poirot didn't fuck around with Venn diagrams, after all. But, on balance, he was willing to believe that he wasn't a murder victim. So, his second theory had been that he had somehow become the conductor on a ghost-specific train. There would be other spirits riding the service, and he would have to check their tickets to the afterlife as some kind of a community service deal. A couple of years to work off any bad deeds from his life, and then he'd be welcomed through the pearly gates. Or, you know, the pearly ticket barrier. Again, though, he found that theory was pretty far from watertight. Setting aside the metaphysical and theological implications of a kind of labour-centric purgatory for sinners, issues that, frankly, he felt the ghost of a deceased IT consultant wasn't best equipped to deal with. The main problem was that Nick had never met another ghost. In many ways, that wasn't surprising. Nick very specifically haunted the 2347 service from London Marlebone to Birmingham Moor Street. And, to be honest, he couldn't think of any good reason for a ghost to be travelling on that line. While he wasn't sure if heaven existed, if it did, it certainly wasn't in Birmingham. On the other hand, there was no good reason for Nick to be on that line either. Now, he didn't want to complain. Chilton Railway was pretty cushy as far as being a ghostly ticket inspector went. Imagine spending eternity stuck on Southern Rail. But the thing about eternity is that it's, well, eternal. And the thing about trains is that after a while, they're fucking boring. Nick had tried to leave, of course, but it was impossible to escape. He couldn't seem to drift through the exit doors of the train the way he drifted through everything else. He'd tried the walls too. He couldn't open windows, climb into luggage, press buttons. Actually, that wasn't strictly speaking true. There was one button he'd been able to press. An odd button that seemed to exist purely in his ghostly realm. There was a symbol on it that was at once both alien and familiar. And it glowed the strangest shade of blue. Oddly alluring. If a button could call to someone, then this button called to Nick. When he'd first seen it, he felt like he'd gone to a childhood home that had been redecorated by new tenants. It was a place he knew well and yet had never visited before. So, of course, he pushed it. But disappointingly, all it did was open and close the doors to first class, and the novelty of playing with it soon wore off. And so it was that Nick had come to accept his fate and had, slightly begrudgingly, tried to do the job of a ticket inspector. Ticket please, he asked the next passenger he came across. No reply, as per. He went to move on. What did you say, mate? Nick stopped, dead in his tracks. Literally. Could this be happening? The fuck did you say to me? The voice was slurred but audible. Its owner was a profoundly drunk man in a crumpled suit. I said ticket, please, Nick stammered, unsure what would happen if the man punched him. He assumed the fist would pass through him harmlessly, but wasn't in a great rush to find out. Didn't say anything, a new voice piped up. Just as Nick turned to see who this was, the drunk man staggered through him. He didn't stay to see how the fight turned out. People who could find sport and drunks fighting disgusted him. He simply floated away, cursing his own foolishness. He should have known. The light at the end of the tunnel is always an oncoming train. Maybe an eternity on a railway 
was precisely the punishment he deserved. Nick wasn't sure if he had a heart, but if he did, it would have been heavy as he carried on down the carriages to continue his thankless and impossible task. He was like a cut-price crappy Sisyphus. A shitifus. Christine would have liked that joke, he thought glumly. She'd always found him funny, even if no one else had. Oh, when he wouldn't give to see her again. Just one more time. And then, all of a sudden, there she was. Nestled in a seat in first class, looking exactly as he remembered her. And the heart that Nick might not technically have had skipped a beat. Christine, he shouted, running towards her. But, of course, she couldn't hear him. Christine, it's me, he tried desperately again and again, jumping and waving and shouting, and nothing. The one woman who had always truly seen him now didn't even know he was there. A new possibility about the train crept into Nick's head. Maybe he was in hell. He stared at his widow and he felt the heart he knew wasn't there breaking in half. She looked tired, he noted. Actually, she looked anxious. He'd been so excited and overwhelmed to see her that he hadn't really seen her at all. She was rubbing her hands together nervously, occasionally breaking to rub her temples. These were movements he knew well. Trademark Christine. She was worried about something. And the warmth he felt at still recognising her moods was sharply undercut by concern for her. Why was she worried, he wondered. He sat down in the seat opposite her. For a moment she glanced up and her piercing blue eyes stared into his. For a fraction of a second, Nick felt alive. What am I doing, Christine muttered to herself in her lilting Scottish accent. What was she doing? It was a good question and one that Nick immediately set about trying to answer using all of his shitty detective skills. With the exception of the Venn diagram, which he couldn't see a use for here. He glanced down at the ticket in front of Christine. Oddly enough, the first things he looked at were the time and date, because, while he may have resented being a ticket inspector, he did take it seriously. She'd bought the ticket hours ago, at 16.23 specifically. So, had she been sitting in the station all evening? Why on earth would she do that? Apart from anything else, she'd now have paid a peak-time price for off-peak travel. Examining the ticket further, Nick felt himself go cold as he spotted the destination. She'd perched a return to a small town in Oxfordshire, one of the more picturesque stops on the line, and the home of Charles. Fucking Charles. Professor Charles Somerville was Christine's oldest friend and briefly her lover when they'd been undergrads together. The two had remained good friends despite romantic incompatibility, exchanging Christmas cards and occasionally meeting for dinners. Charles had stayed on at Oxford and gone on to become a lecturer in anthropology or archaeology, or maybe astronomy. It definitely began with an A, and, in Nick's incredibly informed opinion, was probably bollocks. Charles was friendly, charming, witty and generous, so Nick obviously loathed him with every fibre of his being. He firmly believed that Charles was in love with Christine, although he had to admit a certain bias here as he couldn't contemplate the idea that someone could know Christine and not be in love with her. Mostly, though, he hated Charles because he knew that Christine cared deeply for him, and that made Nick jealous in a way he couldn't quite put into words. And now she was going to see him, 
The scale of such nefarious treachery stunned Nick. How could she? How could she possibly be going to see her ex at a time like this? Why was she even outside of the house? She should be weeping literally constantly, wearing nothing but the strictest morning dress and, in bleaker moments, be abstractly contemplating joining Nick in the afterlife, an idea that horrified him, but touched him nonetheless. He'd barely been dead. Shit. How long had he been dead? Keeping track of the exact time became quite painful after a while. Reminders of how long he'd been stuck here. How long since he'd last eaten real food, last had a conversation, and last touched his wife. It must have been six months? A year? Maybe longer. God, he'd been dead two years. I'm being an idiot, Christine muttered to herself. Goddamn right you are, bellowed Nick. You're betraying me! But... Even as he said it, he knew it wasn't true. The shitty detective in him had already worked it out. In fact, the shitty detective in him had drawn up a lovely Venn diagram to show off his conclusion. One circle was labelled Things I Want, and the other was labelled Things I Fear. And in the middle section, the snappily titled Things I Want But Also Fear was Christine to be happy after I die. He knew she wasn't betraying him. He was betraying her. By so fiercely clinging onto a past he could never recapture, he would condemn her to unhappiness. He hated seeing her this way. Edgy, fidgeting, shadows under her eyes. Maybe Charles would be good for her. It was worth noting, though, that Christine entering into a relationship with Charles was very fucking firmly in the Things I Fear circle. Even so, her happiness would always trump the things Nick feared. It always had. He'd feared dancing in public, but had religiously attended tango classes every Tuesday night after Christine became a fan of the first season of Strictly Come Dancing. He'd feared visiting Africa because of misconceptions about pirates, diseases, and a latent racist streak he found alarming but tried not to dwell on. But their honeymoon to Uganda had been some of the happiest days of his life. Time and time again, his love for her had conquered his continual fear of living. Now, maybe his love for her would conquer his fear of dying. As his subconscious Sherlock finished this soliloquy, Christine stood up suddenly. She grabbed her bag and headed for the exit. Nick jumped up. He had to stop her leaving. He couldn't let her back out from this. But how? He tried grabbing her arm, but simply disintegrated around her like mist. He ran ahead of her. You shall not pass, he shouted like a dickhead. She walked straight through him. Then, at the last moment, he realised what to do. Lunging forward, he hit the mysterious glowing blue button. The door to first class slammed shut, blocking Christine's path, just as the train began pulling out of the station. Christine gently shook her head and retreated back to her seat looking wearier than ever. Outside the window, a young woman was running alongside the train, shouting something. For a moment, her image blurred with Christine's reflection, and, like an echo across time, Nick saw the Christine whom he'd so completely fallen for, and would do anything for. Too late now. Too late now, Christine repeated. 
This wasn't the reaction Nick had hoped for, but he wasn't done yet. He knew what he had to do. As Christine sat down, he spoke loudly and clearly. Ticket, please. Obviously, there was no response because she couldn't hear him, but he was mildly enjoying the theatre of the moment. He reached out for her ticket, and he lifted from it the very soul of her journey. It was like peeling a ghostly skin away from the small scrap of cardboard. It materialised in his hand, a ticket with the name Christine Pettigrew written on it in a clear font. He took his hole punch from his holster, because that's where all ticket inspectors keep their hole punch, and he gently validated the ticket. He, the gatekeeper of the railways, stood aside so she could carry on her journey. He let her go. A change came over Christine, a calmness. His chest was tight, tears prickled behind his eyes, and he hoped she would be, as she always had been, stronger than him. Eternity might not feel so long, knowing she was happy. Turning to leave, he couldn't help but notice that the glowing ghost button had changed. The symbol was slightly different, and the colour was now green. Pressing it, the door slid open, and Nick Pettigrew stepped through. And for once, he felt that the light at the end of the tunnel might not be an oncoming train. Guilt can be a powerful force With winds so strong they'll blow you off course All things in moderation I'm told So I am told You do not choose What you have earned But emerge with some hope From what you have learned All things on bright and on beautiful there's something sure are When do you go? When do you wait? And how do you know if it's ever too late? All things on bright and on beautiful There's something sure Be afraid of desire Don't run away from the fire But a turn of phrase is just cheap talk 
How do you act on a road that forks? Problem with shadows is that you can only chase them when the lights are on. Though it's hard to step into the light, we must reflect. We must reflect. The problem with shadows is that you can only chase them when the lights are on. Though it's hard to step into the light, we must reflect. We must reflect. Charles, it's Christine. I'm on a train, finally. The 2347. So sorry to have missed all your calls. It's incredibly sweet of you to have waited all this time. In every sense. It's not pitiful at all. Although, perhaps fixating on my murder was a bit strange. Anyway, I imagine by this time you may well have fallen asleep. I, well, I, I'm sorry for the delay. In truth, I'm not sure what else to say. I almost didn't come. But something has happened. Something changed. I'm not sure how to describe it. I feel silly talking about it at all. Maybe when I get there I can explain. I feel so calmed. As if a weight's been taken from me. I'll see you very soon, Charles. Sorry the wait has been so long. But I think everything will be all right. A Good Service and All Other Lines is recorded at the Abbey Road Institute. It's written and performed by David Head and Matt Glover. Produced by Carlos Brissio, David Head and Matt Glover. Sound, engineering and mixing by Carlos Brissio. Cello and backing vocals performed by Dom Main. Additional vocal talent is provided by Claire Reedy, Michael Rossi and Susie Jacobson. If you've enjoyed it, please leave us a good review. You can find us on all social media platforms at The David and Matt. This podcast is supported with public funds from Arts Council England. Thank you for listening. <laughs>